Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Future Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Juliette Lamar, and joining us today is Christopher Brown. He is the author of Tropic of Kansas, which is a dystopian novel that was a finalist for the 2018 Campbell Awards for Best Science Fiction Novel of the Year. He is also a technology lawyer. He is a man of many, many talents, and we're very excited to have him on today. So welcome, Christopher. Thank you, Juliet. Delighted to be here. Oh, absolutely. Well, let's you know, let's dive right into Tropic of Kansas. Give people a little bit of an overview about the book and maybe why it's just it's such a hit in our present day. Well, Tropic of Kansas is uh, it's kind of a dystopian road trip through a sort of distorted mirror America. It's the story of uh, a brother and sister trapped in a uh, United States kind of falling apart and uh, uh, strained by political tensions that are finally breaking it into multiple pieces and uh, trying to find their way uh, through this sort of darkening time to a better future. Uh, the book opens when a, uh, a young teenager, a 17-year-old who is a, uh, has been uh, rendered a fugitive due to the political activities of his parents who's been on the run in Canada. He gets deported back uh, to the U.S., uh, a U.S. that's been walled off from the other side, put in a, a detention camp uh, uh, basically for kids. Uh, from which he escapes and uh, finds himself on the run, trying to navigate through the Tropic of Kansas of the title, which is a kind of a, a part of the middle of the U.S., a sort of part of the American heartland that's gone a little bit third world, uh, in a country in which a charismatic CEO has become a kind of fascist American president. His sister, a government lawyer, is tagged to go uh, hunt him down, uh, and they uh, uh, finally find themselves together in the sort of revolutionary sanctuary of New Orleans. And the book, among other things, has gotten some attention for, you know, being deemed uh, prescient for uh, some of these things. It's not a little bit like they're ripped straight from the headlines of today, even though I wrote the book in sort of 2012 to 2014. And uh, sort of proof, I suppose, that... Um, it's sort of like uh, uh, my colleague William Gibson likes to say that the future uh, is already here. It's just not evenly distributed, or maybe the dystopia is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. It's so it's so interesting how the, how that works out. You know, you write this book that now has has so many close ties to the actual real headlines that are happening. You know, where did you draw your your inspiration? I think it's just you know science fiction. I think of uh, well, on the one hand, it's uh, imaginative conjuring, uh, I think, uh, to do a good job, it, it, it's just going to draw from the things you see in the world around you, the things uh, that are there, but uh, maybe not getting as much emphasis. I mean, um, thinking about the idea of the CEO president, um, you know, that's not a really particularly new idea. It was one, uh, it's one that, uh, especially among uh, certain uh, you know, certain segments of the electorate uh, has been uh, popular for a long time. The idea that uh, 
you know, to be a, uh, a great qualification to run a country would be to have run a big company. And, uh, you know, we saw that with both Presidents Bush. Uh, we saw it uh, with uh, Mitt Romney and, and a host of others, uh, both at the presidential and the gubernatorial level. And I thought that was an interesting idea because I've also worked as a corporate lawyer uh, inside companies where I worked with CEOs and worked in boardrooms. And, you know, um, the idea of running a country like a company is interesting because, you know, companies typically don't work as democracies. They work as dictatorships, maybe sometimes benevolent ones. But so I wanted to play with that idea. And and similarly, the idea of this Tropic of Kansas, of sort of the, the parts of America that have gone a little third world. I mean, that's just, you know, sort of based on uh, reporting what I see as I drive around the country. And uh, there are parts of, I think, kind of the American heartland that have been a little bit left behind. And I think we're increasingly cognizant of that. But maybe uh, a few years ago, we weren't so much. And I think science fiction provides a useful way to think about those things by kind of altering the mix a little bit. And kind of putting a mirror up to reality, maybe a funhouse mirror that distorts things a little bit, uh, to provide us a way to maybe think about those issues and at the same time hopefully tell a compelling story. That's so true, you know, your the funhouse mirror analogy because there's a lot of things that that we see and they're right in front of our face. Like you were saying, the CEO is president. You know, is not just with Trump; it's with a lot of other presidents we've seen have that same kind of mindset. And then with with parts of our country becoming so world, I mean, these are right in front of our faces, but we're refusing to acknowledge them because potentially they're they're not what we want to see. Yeah, they may not conform to the narrative we had in mind. And, um, you know, the idea of thinking about uh, revolution, you know, in the context of American politics. And, you know, we live in a country where, uh, you know, we have a revolutionary creation myth. And yet at the same time, uh, talking about those kinds of things, you can kind of see them, you know, burbling around at the margins of our political discourse, and they're pretty scary. Um, uh, but like, you know, in the discussions around uh, issues related to the Second Amendment, it's just kind of right there, like the third rail of American politics. And and so the idea to me of taking, you know, like, well, what if the kinds of things that are happening in, you know, Syria or Egypt uh, uh, were... Um, uh, were hap- or you know, or Venezuela were happening here, and um, I think uh, I think yeah, science fiction is a great tool to do that, and I think doing those kinds of exercises can be uh, uh, both a lot of fun uh, from a sort of you know literary and storytelling point of view, and hopefully uh, provocative uh, uh, in terms of ideas and sort of thinking about things a little bit differently. And so. In your mind right now, I know you've got a couple things coming out soon. You know, what's kind of on the horizon? Um, I mean, what's on the horizon uh, technologically or politically or otherwise? I guess, I guess you know, as from your perspective and your point of view, I know you've got a book coming out uh, quite soon that might be dealing with, uh, with some issues. You know, what are, what are yeah. you really channeling at this time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the book I have coming out next year, a uh, working title is Rule Capture. It'll be coming out next uh, summer or fall from uh, HarperCollins. And it's um, uh, uh, it's a book about uh, a lawyer uh, in an American society in which the very rule of law is sort of under attack. 
um, while at the same time it's a country, a, a, a circumstance in which um, uh, there's immense pressure kind of coming up in the population for um, kind of rethinking the whole legal system, as it were. I mean, the, 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 the elevator pitch for that book is Better Call Saul Meets 1984, which you kind of get, the, <laughs> you know, gives you an image. But in terms of the things that I think, you know, that I see as I'm working on this book, it really is a great question. Uh, this issue of American decline that I think we're all struggling with, the way in which, uh, as I as I look from my, you know, I'm sitting here in the trailer in the front yard that I use as my office, kind of looking out into the world, I see, uh, you know, the way in which uh, the U.S., uh, is sort of changing politically and sort of walking away from the dominant position it's had since the end of World War II. Uh, you can think of that as a decline or think of that as, a, you know, isolationism, or you can think of it as an assertion of sovereignty. Different people have different views. But in my book, I imagine that essentially the U.S. is sort of, uh, it's kind of uh, lost a war with China and is... Uh, sort of struggling to get back on its feet. And to me, that's a powerful metaphor for what it's like when you kind of walk away from the uh, victory on which you had, you know, built a kind of almost imperial power. Um, and and I think the sort of, uh, the other thing that I really, it's really going on in this book is this pressure kind of from all political sides to kind of relook at the constitutional and political system and sort of look at whether it needs a kind of a reboot. Uh, and those ideas are dealt with in Tropic of Kansas as well. But, you know, if you think about the fact that, uh, uh, you know, our constitution was written in the 1780s in a period when, you know, uh, you know, to get to get a message to the next town, you know, required somebody to travel on horseback for a chunk of the day. Um, and, uh, with a much smaller population, with an essentially agrarian society. Um, uh, while it's a, there's great genius to the structure of government, uh, it's one that, um, you know, has to constantly evolve and change. And I think the pressure for, on the one hand, I think a sense among a lot of people to have something that looks more like direct democracy, you know, a more authentically participatory system, a kind of pressure we've seen throughout American history, and one that I think networked, network, you know, network computing and modern telecommunications technologies really amp up the pressure for that. At the same time, as I think people see a kind of a profound desire for authority uh, to be imposed, kind of looking at it from another angle, and a pressure for, you know, a sort of a, a rule of law that's pretty hard and black and white, and that tries to use law to uh, maintain a certain sense of order that's anchored in the past and anchored in an idea of what the country looks like that I think, uh, you know, you could argue is anachronistic. So those kinds of uh, tensions I'm playing with in the system and, and the ways in which some, you know, technologies um, uh, are used as instruments of, uh, you know, those different modes of trying to restructure, you know, social and economic life. Absolutely. So, Christopher, how did you find yourself as an author? You know, what really brought you to this point where you are now really, really considered a top-level author? Well, I mean, it's something I've always, uh, I've always done. Um, I've, I've been doing it, you know, since 
not long after I got out of college. And um, uh, I think uh, I think science fiction in particular, uh, for someone with my interests, which include both literary interests and interests in, in storytelling, as well as interests in you know, sort of big ideas and kind of thinking about what the future looks like, or even just sort of trying to think in a counterintuitive ways about what the present looks like. Uh, it's a really, uh, it's a really compelling uh, way to do that. It's not uh, something that you can, you know, you can't, there's not a, there's not, I mean, maybe there are now, but uh, certainly when I was coming up, there weren't really, uh, you know, places you could go to train to be a science fiction writer. And I think really to, 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 to learn to be any kind of a writer, you know, the best qualification is to live a rich and interesting life and kind of see the world through a lot of different windows and through a lot of different angles. And, um, but, uh, but I've been fortunate, uh, especially since I moved to Austin, Texas in the late nineties to be part of a community of, uh, uh, science fiction writers and, uh, to participate in workshops, uh, where groups of writers get together and sort of hone their craft. And, uh, that's really sort of where I've, you know, kind of, uh, learn the most about the uh you know the, the kind of yeoman crafts craft uh, part of the process uh and uh, uh and then uh you know you sort of plug away and uh uh it's uh i don't know drawing by by sitting down at the typewriter and kind of looking at the world around you and trying to uh put it through that sort of prismatic lens is how you come up with a uh, uh what what hopefully is a, a compelling, uh, compelling novel length story for people to read. And, you know, you weren't always, we touched on this briefly, you weren't always uh, an author. You have also been a technology lawyer, which is, which is a very, very interesting field to be in. Um, let's talk a little bit about green futures. This sparked my interest when you and I were chatting earlier. Yeah. I mean, so, um, uh, and I, I, I've been very interested for, you know, I don't know, a long time in uh, maybe a different way of thinking about, uh, you know, what constitutes a green future? How do we get to a green future? Uh, I mean, you know, we're, we live in the age that uh, uh, many are now calling the Anthropocene, you know, the age of a sort of uh, in which nature sort of is predominantly created or conditioned or modified by uh, human domination of the planet. And, uh, uh, and in our ways of thinking about what a uh, green future looks like, we tend to focus on it kind of as an engineering problem. We talk a lot about, you know, sustainability in terms of, you know, figuring out new ways to generate energy, figuring out new ways to conserve energy, figuring out ways to um, cause less damage to the planet. And all of those things are very important. But we don't think a lot about is sort of the very idea of nature. And the idea of nature is being separate and apart from us. And, uh, and the idea versus the idea that, wait, there really is no separation between us and nature, especially if we're living in the Anthropocene, Anthropocene you know, epoch of you know, planetary geological history, one in which 
you know, human existence and nature are the same thing. Uh, and so I've been playing around with ways of um, kind of obliterating that barrier. I've done it in the, in, in my own uh, in, in my own domicile where we've I've, I've I've been doing a project for the last decade together with my family where we have. Um, uh, constructed a home in a former petroleum pipeline brownfield in which we uh, uh, have designed a house is basically like a buried hobbit house from the future. Uh, the premises of which is to share the entirety of our habitat with some limits with all of the other species around us. We've planted a, um, uh, done a kind of a one acre restoration of the kinds of uh, plant biodiverse plant uh, ecology that was here before European settlement, the Blackland Prairie, working with the Ladybird Johnson Wildflower Center, and um, and that's brought back all manner of bizarre and interesting insects, and then lizards and reptiles, and even mammalian life and bird life, and kind of this almost Edenic avatar-like uh, environment, and it's kind of a model and a proving ground for ways of integrating wild nature back into the fabric of the city. And I think it's just one of many, many projects you see around the world like that, where people are looking at ways to say, hey, uh, you know, this skyscraper can be part of green nature. You can integrate uh, green roof elements into it. You can hang vines off of the side of it. You can intentionally create habitat. I live in Austin, Texas, where one of the landmarks is a bridge downtown which happens to have been constructed in a manner in which the sort of under under uh, beams uh, are have these apertures that are the perfect width to provide roosts uh, during the daytime for the Mexican free-tailed bat, so the largest bat colony in the world. And these other projects I'm talking about are sort of examples of saying, well, what if you did things like that to create habitat for other species within the urban environment on purpose? And I think doing those things takes the idea of a green future to a whole different level and uh, and also has the potential to really, you know, ignite uh, urban life with a kind of greater sense of wonder. And are you seeing more and more interest in this green future as opposed to earlier times in our history? Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, um, I think the idea of bringing the wild into the city is a really a very 21st century thing, you know, and partly it's a function of the way in which, uh, like, especially in the North American context, many species are, you know, increasingly adapted to coexistence with human urban environments. You know, I guess the number one, uh, most dense population of peregrine falcons in the world, or at least in the in the Western Hemisphere now, it's apparently New York City. Um, huh. And throughout the world, and kind of among throughout the great cities of the world, there's this uh, great emphasis on restoring urban rivers. If you go to Munich, Germany, for example, they've taken six miles of the Isar River there, running through downtown Munich a river that I spent a lot of time around when I was younger, uh, and, 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 and it was kind of a almost industrialized canal, you know, the sort of, uh, this sort of black channel neglected, just this thing where, you know, as in most American, as in most 
industrialized parts of the Western world, water was thought of almost treated almost like waste, right? And um, and they have like completely restored it to be as close as possible to the way it was before there was even a city there, uh, with kind of natural shorelines. Uh, they've controlled the intake so that what goes into that part of the river is cleaner. Uh, all of these native plants along either side and kind of natural shoals. And it's the most amazing thing. You go there and like summertime at lunch, everybody runs out of their downtown offices and they're out, you know, swimming in the wild river. And it could be, you know, uh, 2000 years in the past for all you would know. Um, and in the same way, you know, every place is from, you know, Los Angeles to Houston are doing similar things here. And so I think there are a lot of these uh, things going on. And I think they, you know, the generation coming up, I think, is a lot more attuned to uh, the importance of integrating uh, our connection with the natural world into everyday life. Even see it in projects like the High Line in New York. That's really an example of, you know, trying to, the greening of the city, one that you can just see by its success how intuitively uh, and dramatically people connect with those ideas when you implement them well. Absolutely. Um, Christopher, just uh, for audience, what is the best way to connect with you, to follow, to follow what you're up to and to purchase your books when they come out? Yeah, well, I, I, you can find me online at ChristopherBrown.com. And um, I'm on Twitter at NB underscore Chris. And uh, that's kind of my main social media platform. And uh, I'm also on several other platforms. And all of those are listed through my website, which, again, is ChristopherBrown.com. Fantastic. Well, Christopher, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you again for coming on and sharing your wisdom and insight and and your unique outlook on, on our world today. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Julia. It was delightful. That is Christopher Brown. He's the author of Tropic of Kansas. You can find his book on his website and on Amazon. It's all over the place. Definitely check it out, everyone. Thank you all so much for tuning in. This has been Juliet Lamar with Future Tech Podcast. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.